Welcome to the Biner Family Speaker Series, a podcast dedicated to high-level research on contemporary anti-Semitism by fostering productive and collegial discussion of the most pertinent issues before us. Hosted by the Indiana University Institute for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. For more information about this speaker series, ISCA News, or videos of past webinars, please visit our website at isca.indiana.edu. And now to present our speaker, Dr. Alvin H. Rosenfeld. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Um, my name is Gunda Yukili, and uh, I'll be the moderator of this webinar. Alvin Rosenfeld, who usually introduces our speaker, um, is traveling today. Um, so I have a new job. And so let me introduce uh, Dave Rich. Uh, we met in Paris nine years ago, um, exactly nine years ago. I looked it up on the 3rd of December when uh, Professor Wistrich gave a talk on anti-Semitism in France and raising the alarm about anti-Semitism in Europe and particularly in France. And here we are a decade later talking about the, the rise of anti-Semitism globally and what to do about this. Dave Rich wrote two books, two very important books, I think. One is The Left's Jewish Problem, Jeremy Corbyn, Israel and Antisemitism, published in 2016. Uh, and earlier this year, Everyday Hate, How Antisemitism is Built into a World and How You Can Change It, which is also uh, the title of this talk. And I think there are very few people who are as qualified as you are, uh, Dave, to talk about this issue. You are uh, affiliated with the CST, the Community Security Trust um, in Britain, and you're also a research fellow at the London Center for the Study of Contemporary Antisemitism that um, has also a great webinar series, a webinar program, by the way. Um, and he is on the editorial board of the Journal of Contemporary Antisemitism. Um, and a lot of the articles I think they have are uh, open access. So if you want to check these out, you can go to the website. Uh, Dr. Rich will give a presentation for about 30 minutes, and then we have a lot of time for discussions. Um, and as usually, we disable the chat during the talk, enable it, then after the talk, and also invite you after the talk to join us on the panel to uh, discuss with us directly uh, your questions and comments. But without further ado, I hand over to you, Dave, um, and um, we'll discuss then any questions or comments that the audience have later. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Gunther, and thank you to everyone for joining. Um, these are difficult times for Jewish communities around the world, for everyone who works with or in Jewish communities, who works in anti-Semitism. And I want to start by sending my best wishes to all of you and your families and your communities. I've noticed in the last two months, emails don't begin in the same way they used to between Jewish people. Uh, the line, I hope you are well, just doesn't really do the job anymore. Um, Things have changed. And what I'm going to be talking about over the next 30, 40 minutes or so is how some of these things have changed uh, and what possibly it means for us. Um, this webinar was arranged several months ago uh, after my my book came out, Everyday Hate. And at the time when we arranged it, and if it had happened earlier in this year, we would have been having probably a very different conversation or a conversation about a very different type of anti-Semitism to the one that we are currently forced to deal with. You know, we might have been talking about teenage neo-Nazis who spend hours on 4chan and Telegram fantasizing about burning down their local synagogue, even if they live in places that doesn't have a local synagogue. Or maybe we would have been talking about the way that Elon Musk encourages and amplifies some of the most troubling conspiracy theorists on Twitter or X, as he's now called it or maybe Kanye West, or one of these other episodes. And, um, you know, the theme of my book is about how deeply anti-Semitic assumptions and, and negative beliefs and stereotypes about Jewish people are are built into our world so deeply that, that people don't even notice. 
And one of the um, things that, that, that happens as a consequence is there's always a new example of anti-Semitism that comes along and quite often from left field, from people you wouldn't expect. Um, but sometimes the type of anti-Semitism we see is something we've seen before and is very predictable. And right now, I think obviously we're living through one of those moments um, where Israel is at war, Israel was under attack, and um, it triggers waves of anti-Semitism around the world of a type that I think we are sadly now familiar with, but that I think we struggle to really get the shape of and and the drivers of and on, and the solutions to. And we need to discuss this. We need to understand its features and its implications for the future and for all of us. Now, I give a lot of talks about anti-Semitism the last couple of months. I've spoken to lots of meetings with politicians and police and journalists about what happened, what Hamas did on the 7th of October, the impact this had on Jewish communities, the rise in anti-Semitism in the UK. And I know that much of this I don't have to explain to this audience. I will get into what's going on in the UK. Um, but the impact of the Hamas terror attack, the Hamas pogrom on the 7th of October on the Jewish world is something that is unprecedented in my lifetime, I think. Um, but I know, like I say, I don't need to explain this here. And we've seen in response enormous anti-Israel demonstrations in the UK and in London specifically, beginning on the 8th of October and carrying on from there. And I'm going to get into this in some more detail in a, in a bit. But before I do, I just want to show you one aspect of these protests, just as a way of framing our discussion today. I'm going to show you some pictures um, of some of the placards taken on these protests by a minority of the marchers. It's a small number of people in a very big march but it's the people who brought along explicitly anti-Semitic homemade placards. And I'm not showing you this to prove there was anti-Semitism on these marches, because there's always some anti-Semitism on these marches, and we can get into why. But it's what they put on the placards that I think is really interesting and really tells us something. So I'm just going to share my screen. Um, this is not an anti-Semitic placard. This is the front cover of my book. Um, but... These are some of the placards. And we can talk through the themes. This is the blood libel. The one on the left is our blood so sweet with three figures, presumably Israelis, with blood coming from their mouths because they're drinking blood. Similar reference to the blood. These are just examples of the kind of things we saw. There were many others. There's the satanic Jews. So on the right is... Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu as Satanyahu uh, with a bag of blood to drink. So still the blood libel. And on the left is President Biden again as a devil, but a devil wearing an Israeli tie, drinking blood again. So the satanic Jew. These are very old anti-Semitic stereotypes and ideas. The dishonest Jew, the dishonest Zionist. You see the one on the right, the Zionist lies more than it breathes, totally dehumanized. And on the left, again with blood dripping, the only crime the Palestinians have committed is accepting you as refugees, you the Jews, while you were kicked out of every country in Europe. So using the history of anti-Semitic persecutions as a weapon to turn back on Jewish people. Again, devious, lying Jews, tricking Palestinians and so on. We have the Zionist New World Order. We have the Zionists controlling the media and the government. It's this mixture of old and new that is so striking. Here we have, if you look at the image, the, the, the picture within the picture, the Israeli snake wrapped around the, the, the globe. I mean, this is, a, this is an image straight out of 19th century French or early 20th century German anti-Jewish propaganda. And, and, and the wording is this classic mixture of old and new. You have Israel or Jews as child killers and as liars, but also as a terror state, as land grabbers, as oppressors, as Zionists. 
So it's this old and new mixture, which is so, so telling and so powerful in a way. Obviously, the ubiquitous Holocaust references um, that we see with what's happening in Gaza, portrayed as the new Holocaust. On the left, you have End the Palestinian Holocaust. On the right, Welcome to Gaza, twinned with Auschwitz, with blooded hands. And in the middle, you see a Star of David combined with a swastika. So it's this same idea, Israel is the Nazi state. And then these two images, for me, sum up everything about the new modern anti-Semitism that we're seeing. On the left, you have the oldest anti-Semitic trope of all. You have a Palestinian child on a crucifix, so reviving the charge of deicide. And right in front of it is another placard, Zionism is white settler colonialism. And this combination of the two, this old and new in one picture, is so striking. And the placard on the right is a very clear slogan. I'll come back to this. You're either on the white side of history or the right side of history. It's this identity politics, this idea that Israel, the United States, the United Kingdom and France, as we see on this placard, are part of this global network of white supremacy. And that is the way to understand what is happening in Israel and Gaza right now. That is the framing. That is the explanation. And I think that is just very uh, very telling in terms of framing for us what exactly is, is going on at the moment. Now, most people don't do this who go on these marches, right? They don't take along these placards. But for those who do, I always picture these people, I always imagine them sat at home on the morning of one of these big demonstrations or the night before with a blank piece of cardboard and a marker pen thinking, what is the single most important message I can take with me on my placard to show my support for the Palestinians in Gaza? And so many of these people, the answer that comes into their head and flows through their marker pen onto their placard is something from this very, very long history of anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish motifs and myths and libels. Going back centuries all the way to the crucifixion in one case and where do these where do they get these ideas from where do people get anti-semitic ideas from in the modern world and the answer is usually a combination of the internet or social media on the one hand and the middle ages on the other hand and putting these two things together and understanding how they coalesce how they connect is an essential part of grasping how anti-Semitism works and why it looks and sounds like it does. You have to know the history, but you also have to know the modern dynamics of why it plays out and how new language gets layered on. You know, the language of, of settler colonialism, the language of Israel as a Nazi state, this is new, but it's layered on top of the old. Now, this set of beliefs, you know, the like I say, the crucifixion, the blood libel, the cruel, vengeful Jew, the conspiratorial, manipulative Jew. These are very old traditional ideas generated or popularised since the Middle Ages or even earlier. And it's a reminder that when, when it comes to anti-Semitism, nothing is really new. The language may change, but the ideas have been set for a very long time. And so when people want to express anger and fury about what they see Israel as doing, it's striking how often they reach for this anti-Semitic vocabulary because this is how society teaches people to think and talk about Jews behaving badly, for want of a better phrase. Especially at times like this, at times of extreme social and political stress, and we've had a lot of this in our politics over the last you know, seven, eight years or so on both sides of the Atlantic, um, We've had economic crash. I mean, going back further than seven or eight years, we've had economic crash. We've had political disruptions. We've had the rise of populism on left and right. We've had wars. We've had terrorism. We've had pandemic. I mean, the conditions are perfect in a way for a rise in anti-Semitic thinking. And especially if the crisis in question involves Jews or Israel, as the current war does, these ways of thinking, these ideas about Jews come out. They come to the fore. And it's this, it's this fantasy 
about the fearsome danger supposedly posed by Jews to the world. This is what I think connects the old and new. About the secret deployment of supposed Jewish wealth and power in pursuit of some malevolent Jewish goal and to the detriment of the rest of humanity, combined with an assumption of, of Jewish, Jewish evil, Jewish malignancy, used to explain whatever the latest crisis is to hit the world. And there's this whole spectrum of anti-Semitic attitudes and comments and assumptions and beliefs that Jews, Jewish people encounter every day, one way or the other, whether online or in person, all deriving from this idea that is so deeply embedded in our societies. Now, just to be clear, because I'm painting a pretty bleak picture, I'm not saying that we all live in endemically anti-Semitic societies or that the world is an endemically anti-Semitic place or that most ordinary people are hostile to Jewish people. That's not what the opinion polling tells us. It's not what our research shows us either. It's that these ideas exist for those who want to use them. And these ideas get expressed and believed and shared by people who don't even understand what they are dealing with and what these ideas are. Um, but this idea, it, it crops up again and again. And it is striking how mainstream it has become, I think, in our politics and in society in recent years. The basic underlying idea that um, Jewish people can't be trusted and are always up to no good and have always got an ulterior motive. And it's usually a cruel or inhumane motive that is harmful either physically or morally to the rest of humanity. And this is the case whether it is neo-Nazis blaming George Soros for immigration into Europe and the United States, or whether it is people on the far left blaming the Rothschilds and global Jewish finance for inequality in our societies, or whether it is people seeing Israel as the driver of all war and terrorism anywhere in the globe. It's this tracing back to Jews, wherever it is people are fearful of or people hate and dislike and the conspiracy element of this is anti-semitism's defining characteristic it's this extra dimension that differentiates it from other forms of prejudice or that layers on top of other types of prejudice and this is what this is the question i try and answer in my book everyday hate is why does this idea about the jews appeal to so many people irrespective of their political background their nationality their religious affiliation their income or their education. Um, and this is something else that I think is really important to remember when we're talking about antisemitism. There is often a tendency to ascribe antisemitism to one part of the political spectrum or another, either it's the left or it's the right, or to ascribe it to one community or another, either it's all Muslims or that's an Islamophobic thing to say and so on. Or people put it down to poverty or lack of education, but then how do you explain the likes of Henry Ford or Elon Musk reproducing anti-Semitic ideas on Twitter? And how do we explain people reproducing anti-Semitic ideas while being absolutely adamant that they are not at all anti-Semitic? And this is a really significant change, I think, is people who, who do share uh, and appear to believe anti-Semitic ideas but in their own heads, the last thing they would ever want to be thought of is an anti-Semite. And that's very different from a century ago, let's say. Now, this is, this is something that those of us who work in this field grapple with all the time. And most of the time, hopefully, most Jewish people don't really need to think about it. But since 7th of October, every Jewish person has been thinking about anti-Semitism, certainly all the ones I know. Um... And this is because we have seen these huge rises in anti-Semitism around the world. And I will tell you a little bit about what's been going on in the UK. So my organisation, CST, that I work for, we take reports of anti-Semitic hate incidents and hate crimes from across the Jewish community. And we publish statistics and analysis twice a year. Um, from the 7th of October until the end of this week, just gone, we had recorded over 1,700 anti-Semitic incidents UK-wide. That is more incidents than we recorded in the whole of last year. And it's around 
560%, maybe up to 600% higher than we would normally expect to see over the 52 days or so that it covers. Um, and it's an unprecedented increase in the size of the increase, but it's something we see every, every time Israel is at war. Now, overwhelmingly, these incidents have not been violent. We've been quite lucky in that respect. I don't want to tempt fate. But whereas we have seen firebombings of shuls in Germany and in Tunisia and firebombings in Canada, and we've seen other violent incidents elsewhere, the vast majority of these incidents in the UK have been rhetorical. This is a wave of discursive harassment and intimidation of Jewish people, mostly verbal, but also with graffiti and uh, online hate. But it's a, it's a wave of it's it's anti-Semitism through language and through ideas. Um, it's the targeting of visibly Jewish people through verbal abuse and threats, and it's the targeting of Jewish property. Um, and I will share my screen again just to show you some examples of this. So on the left is red paint thrown on the door of a Jewish school in London. Uh, there were two different Jewish schools in London that were targeted in this way. On the right is graffiti reading uh, SS, as in the Nazi SS and IDF, which was daubed on the wall of a synagogue in Sussex. Um, and this was early on. This was early on after 7th of October, within a couple of weeks. Here, the word Gaza was daubed on the sign of the Wiener Holocaust Library, which is a very famous Holocaust research centre and library in central London. Um, and, it, you know, nothing to do with Israel. These are Jewish buildings, Jewish community buildings, or in this case, you know, a Holocaust library. This is graffiti, Free Palestine, daubed on, it was daubed on two railway bridges over the main roads in Golders Green. Now, Golders Green, for those of you who know London, is probably the best known Jewish neighbourhood in the whole of the UK, actually. And the Jewish community woke up on the morning of Monday, the 9th of October, to see this graffiti on across two railway bridges in the heart of the community. Now, this is a clear attempt to intimidate the Jewish community and to use a political slogan, Free Palestine, that in and of itself is just an ordinary political slogan, but to use it as a rhetorical weapon, as a weapon of intimidation. Um, and this is graffiti, again, Free Palestine, on a kosher restaurant. It's a kosher Israeli restaurant, as you see from the sign. The name is in Hebrew and in Arabic. Um, they do the best falafel in London. If anyone's ever in London, go to Baladi. Um, and they've been targeted in this way. And uh, the um, the nice thing about this is that they also got a note from a neighbour about how utterly appalling this is, and they wanted to come help clean it off straight away. Um, now, the interesting thing about these images, the first three that I showed you happened within a week or so of the 7th of October attacks. And so far from the anti-Semitic incident data we've logged at CST, the highest daily incident totals came within the first week after the 7th of October attack, not in the period more recently when the death toll and the physical destruction in Gaza has reached a peak. It was not after the global reports of the Al-Ali hospital being hit by an explosion, which was wrongly blamed on Israel initially. The highest daily incident totals we logged were not after Israel entered the uh, Al-Shifa hospital. It was within the first week, just as the, the first demonstrations were in the first week. And this is a reminder that we, um, we sometimes put some of this kind of anti-Israel connected anti-Semitism down to people being really angry about things that Israel have done or things they believe Israel have done. But we should never forget, nothing excites anti-Semites like anti-Semitism does. And in the in the week or so following 7th of October, there were a lot of anti-Semites who were simply excited by the fact that so many Jews have been killed and saw this as 
the red, the green light for them to go out and threaten Jewish people and intimidate Jewish people in our cities and our homes in the West. Um, and a lot of the anti-Israel linked anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic hate crimes we see are coming from not misguided supporters of the Palestinians, but from plain old anti-Semites who hate Israel and who hate Jews. Now, it sometimes feels that these kind of spasms of anti-Semitism that crash onto Jewish communities at times like this come from nowhere. But of course, they don't come from nowhere. They follow on a long history of anti-Semitism of the type that we've discussed and this deep-seated and long-held set of ideas about Jews that have been built into our world over many centuries. Things people just think they know about Jewish people or don't even think it, not consciously. And one reason why this keeps happening, why anti-Semitism keeps recurring, is simply that it always has done. And that might sound banal, but it's more important than you might think. People who fall for anti-Semitic myths and conspiracies and stereotypes, who follow these built-in ideas about Jews, they're like hikers following a trail across an unfamiliar landscape, who just instinctively follow the path trodden into the earth by countless people before them in times long forgotten, without really thinking about why. It just seems like the right thing to do the right thing to think or say about the Jews, because these ideas have been around for so long and are so familiar that we don't even notice them. And they are deeply embedded in the mainstream of our culture. They go back centuries, like we've said, whether it's Jews being blamed for the death of Jesus or medieval allegations of blood libels and well poisoning or the conspiracy theories, the protocols, the elves of Zion and so on. But if you think about Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, where you'll find Shylock, the moneylender, probably the best-known Jew in all of English literature, or the character of Fagin in Oliver Twist, and you'll also find this idea played for laughs in South Park and Family Guy, you know, the Jew is the cunning, dishonest, greedy person, spiteful and cruel, etc. It's a more common feature of our mainstream culture than we'd probably like to admit. And it translates into all sorts of ways into playground insults, into some of the underlying themes of some of the political ideas that spread, and also into our language. And, and negative ideas about Jews are built into the English language in ways that, that we don't even notice, I think. Um, a few years ago, I was, uh, I was working with a well-known anti-racism body in England who were writing a guide to anti-Semitism for their stakeholders. And they asked me to contribute a section to it about the Jewish community. So I drafted a few paragraphs about Jews in Britain. You know, the usual stuff, kind of where in the country most Jews live, the variety of religious practice, what Orthodox Jews will and won't do on the Sabbath, that kind of stuff. And I got an unexpected uh, reply, very sensitively worded, genuinely friendly. They said, they asked me, is it really okay to use the word Jew rather than Jewish people? Because isn't Jew an insult? Right. And I, I hadn't thought of this. And these were good people, I have to say, who were asking this, people who would never, ever use the word Jew as an insult, but obviously heard it used that way often enough that they were very uncomfortable about the idea of, um, of the word. They thought it was an offensive term. And, um, found it quite enlightening because this is not like most racist insults that are directed at the minority that is the intended target of the abuse when jew is word as an insult used as an insult in just on its own it's in between people who aren't jewish and who call each other a jew because who wants to be thought of as a jew right and you only have to look up the word jew in the oxford english dictionary to know just how far back this goes and how widely it's been used so we have this baseline, we have this set of Im implicit assumptions about Jews residing within the fabric of our world. And then Israel, the Jewish state, the most visible expression of collective Jewishness in the world today, uh, that is attacked and then goes to war. And it's naive, I think, to believe that all these assumptions and beliefs about Jews would not in some way or other influence and shape how some people react. And that doesn't mean people are being consciously anti-Semitic. It just means there is there is cultural baggage when Jews are involved that isn't the case with other foreign conflicts. And no other foreign conflict generates a reaction of comparable scale or emotional intensity to conflicts involving Israel. So in London on the first Saturday after the Hamas terror attack, 50,000 people marched against Israel. 
And on the next Saturday, 100,000. And the same the week after that. And then the week after that, there were 300,000 people in the biggest march of the lot. That's more people on that march than there are Jews in Britain. Now, this is not normal. This is not normal. And we should not just blithely assume this is a normal response. Nobody marches in such numbers to express their feelings about any other foreign conflict. And similarly, you do not get, for instance, there was no wave of anti-Russian hate crime after Russia invaded Ukraine, not in the UK. It doesn't happen. But you get these waves of anti-Jewish hate crime with Israel. It's unique and it's disturbing. You know, we can look for comparisons. Um, Saudi Arabia is the world's biggest importer of British arms. It's been prosecuting a war in Yemen that's killed a huge number of people. Britain has a colonial history with Saudi Arabia, at least as deep and long as the one in Israel and Palestine. Uh, the UN estimated 377,000 people lost their lives in Yemen between 2014 and the end of 2021. And you won't get even tens of thousands of people marching for that conflict. It just doesn't resonate in the same way. Um, now, the, um, the, the, the reason why I think this is the case, and it's really interesting to look at why the people in these movements and who go on these marches, how they explain it when they're challenged on singling out Israel. And the explanation usually comes down to Israel is part of us. It's part of the West in a way that Saudi Arabia isn't, in a way that Turkey isn't, even though Turkey is a member of NATO and has been suppressing Kurdish nationalism for just as long as Palestinian nationalism has been struggling. Um, and, in you know, with a huge loss of life uh, in that conflict, too. Um, but the response you tend to get is Israel is part of the West. It wants to be part of the West. It's culturally connected. And therefore, we're kind of responsible. And that I find interesting because Jews have never had an uncomplicated role in Western culture, in European culture, and in, in civilizations deriving from European culture. Jews have always had a, a, a complex position where Jews have been given different roles at different times. There's been anti-Semitism, there's been philo-Semitism. Jews generally have been elevated with a meaning and a purpose ascribed to them that has not always been helpful or welcome, has not always been a, a, well, very often is not a fair reflection of the role of Jews in society, but it gives Jews a symbolic role. And this can be, you know, the anti-Semitic narratives and characters of images that we've discussed in Shakespeare and so on, or in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, or it can be the philo-Semitism of, 17th century Protestantism in, in Amsterdam and in London that led to English Jews being allowed, the Jews being allowed back into England, or 19th century Victorian philo-Semites, you know, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, these other conflicts that just don't resonate culturally in the same way. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that all of Israel's critics or anyone of these, everyone in these marches are anti-Semitic, far from it, I'm not saying that. But, but the fact that Israel is Jewish, the fact that Israel is the birthplace of Christianity, it can't be meaningless it can't play no role and i think it's very interesting when we look at these big protests when you have three hundred thousand people marching through central london on a march for palestinian rights and against israel what do we know about these people we know that some of them are anti-semitic and support hamas because they bring along placards to tell us and we know that other people are not anti-Semitic and don't support Hamas and just want a ceasefire and want peace. And I know that because I know people of that ilk who went on these marches. But what we don't know is what proportion each group is actually in. And we do tend to reassure ourselves and are reassured by others who say the vast majority of people on these marches are not anti-Semitic. So which I will say, well, how do you know? Who's done any polling of this? No one really knows what proportion the peacemakers and the Hamasniks are on a march like this. I very much want to believe that the vast majority are not anti-Semitic. But who knows? Now, what we do know is what proportion of the UK public is anti-Semitic, because there's been a lot of polling about this. And I'm going to quote from one poll, which is the biggest one that's been done, which was done by partly by CST, but led by the Institute for Jewish Policy Research with Ipsos Mori. 
2017. So it's a few years old now, but it was a big poll. And I think it, it probably could do with being repeated. Uh, but for now, they're pretty robust figures. And this survey found that around uh, 2.4% of people in Britain are what you might call hardcore anti-Semites and a further 3% or so sort of softer. Around 5% of the general population in the UK can justifiably be described as anti-Semites who hold a wide range of negative attitudes towards Jews. Now, 5% is a pretty small slice of the pie and it compares very favourably to most other countries around the world. But if you do the maths, 5% of the British population works out as 12 anti-Semites for every British Jew, which is a bit disconcerting. And if 5% of the 300,000 people on that march were anti-Semites, that would make 15,000 anti-Semites all marching together, which would be the, the largest political demonstration of Jew haters in modern British history. As a minority of the march as a whole, but 15,000 people. For those of you who know your, your history of British fascism, for example, Oswald Mosley's black shirts only pulled together between 3,000, maybe 5,000 fascists at Cable Street in 1936, at the famous march that was stopped by 100,000 or so Jews, East, East Londoners and others. But that isn't the end of the story, because that 2017 poll found that while only around 5% of the British population are anti-Semites, 30% believe, believe at least one anti-Semitic stereotype or one negative idea about Jews. Things like Jews get rich at the expense of others, Jews have too much power in Britain, Jews think they're better than other people, and 30% of the British population agreed with at least one of these statements. And that doesn't mean they're anti-Semites, doesn't mean they're consciously hostile towards Jewish people. A lot of them also agreed with a positive statement about Jews. It's just how much these anti-Semitic ideas circulate in society. It's a sign of how widely they're believed. Um, now, if 30% of the British population believes at least one anti-Semitic idea, if that march of 300,000 people was a genuine representation of British society, does that mean 30% of those marches have at least one negative thought in their heads about Jews? Except that 2017 poll also asked people what they thought of Israel, and then it it correlated the people who are very who are very strongly anti-Israel were correlated anti-Israel views and anti-Jewish views, and it found that 74 percent of people with very strongly anti-Israel views, the kind of people who agreed that Israel is deliberately trying to wipe out the Palestinian population, that Israel is an apartheid state that should be boycotted, and so on. 74% of them also held at least one anti-Jewish attitude. So much more than the general population. And we don't know how that maps onto the pro-Palestinian movement. We don't know how that maps onto this march of 300,000 people. We don't know whether 5% of those marches were anti-Semites or whether 30% or 74% have at least one anti-Jewish negative stereotype that they believe. But it would be a remarkable anomaly if a march against Israel did not disproportionately attract people who don't like Jews or who believe negative ideas about Jews. And that's before you get to the people who don't care. And this is the last the last subject I want to touch on before we get to questions. Is the people who've shown since 7th of October that they don't care about Israeli human rights, about Jewish human rights, and why don't they care? I was at a vigil, well, not a vigil, a protest this morning in London about the relative silence from UN women's bodies, other international women's bodies, from women's organisations in the UK, the relative silence about the sexual violence and systematic rape meted out by Hamas on Israeli Jewish women on the 7th of October, of which there is now overwhelming and utterly appalling evidence um, that is being gathered in Israel. And it took, what, over 50 days for the United Nations at any senior level to make any kind of comment about this. And even when they did, it was pretty weak. And why? Why does this get ignored? Um, and I think this comes down to the idea of Israel as a guilty nation. 
And the reason why this idea is so widespread is connected to the idea of Israel as a settler colony. This belief that Israel is not an authentic or a legitimate nation state, but is a settler colony imposed by the Western imperial powers and destined to be swept away by history like French Algeria or British Rhodesia. It's, I think, perhaps the single most important animating idea of this current wave of anti-Semitism. And it is completely commonplace. It's almost an article of faith in parts of the left. It doesn't only reject Israel's legitimacy, but it's also an assault on Jewish collective identity and um, a real problem in the fight against anti-Semitism. And you see it everywhere. Um, thousands, around I think three and a half thousand, four thousand academics and students at 120 different British universities put their name to a statement calling Israel an ongoing settler colonial project demanded recognition of the right to resist Zionist settler colonialism and so on, with no qualification about not attacking civilians. And we've seen countless statements, similar statements from academics and activists that make no mention of the 7th of October Hamas terror attack, no mention of hostages, no mention of Israeli civilians. Their rights are just gone. Now, this belief that Israel is not a proper nation, but is uh, simply a European colony and a relic of empire, it's not new. It's been part of Palestinian and it was part of Soviet propaganda for decades. It's been carefully nurtured and embedded within academia, taught in countless lecture halls and seminar rooms. It was supercharged, I think, by the politics of the Black Lives Matter movement, which taught a whole generation of activists to see all conflicts at home or abroad as manifestations of white supremacy and systemic racism and tries to use this framing to explain what's happening in Israel and Gaza. Now, this is a hopelessly inadequate framing to explain a, a conflict and a set of relations as complicated and multi-layered as those between Israel, Palestine, and the wider Arab and Muslim world. But it acts as a kind of a simplifying filter that flattens out all of those complexities and converts Palestinians and Israelis into morally one-dimensional characters with Israeli Jews as the symbols of Western conquest and Palestinians as representing the virtue of the oppressed. And of course, if all of Israel is a settler colony, then every Israel is a colonizer and colonizers have no rights. So Joseph Massad, who's professor of modern Arab politics and intellectual history at Columbia, described the Kibbutz Sim that became the sites of mass slaughter uh, by Hamas, all of which are on land that has been undisputed sovereign Israeli territory since Israel's founding. He described these as settler colonies and said the colonists' flight from these settlements may prove to be a permanent exodus. They may have finally realized that living on land stolen from another people will never make them safe. Now, branding every Israeli since 1948 a colonist and every town and city in Israel as a settler colony makes their existence eternally illegitimate. It's an original sin that Israel from which Israel can never escape and which every Israeli carries from generation to generation is this idea of an eternally guilty nation and the guilty people who therefore have no rights, who therefore, if they get murdered, if they get kidnapped, if they get raped, they do not have the same right to expect solidarity and support from the rest of the world. And I think that goes, it's this dehumanization of Israel and Israelis that we have seen over decades, this treatment of Israel as a unique entity from the United Nations downwards and in much of the pro-Palestinian movement that I think now explains the silence, the disinterest and the justification over what Hamas did. Um, and the implication of all this is that Jewish collective identity is then not like other identities. Either it's a hollow fraud, because Jews are not worthy of calling themselves a people and therefore not deserving of the rights that come with that status, or it bears a uniquely malevolent and permanent stain that must be suppressed for the good of humanity. And that thinking about Israel and about Zionism traces itself all the way back to the kind of image of the demonic Jew in, in medieval European societies. And... Um, 
it also it holds people back from truly opposing anti-Semitism in our own countries. It it persuades people, perhaps even reassures them that they don't need to care about anti-Semitism. Never mind caring about attacks on Israel and Israelis. They don't need to care about attacks on British Jews or American Jews or French Jews. You know, the UK has seen a record increase, as I said, in anti-Semitic hate crimes since the 7th of October. In London, in the month of October, the Metropolitan Police recorded 533 anti-Semitic hate crimes compared to just 39 in the same month last year. An absolute tidal wave of anti-Semitic hate. And yet, with some, some honourable exceptions, and there are exceptions, the campaigning organisations of the anti-racist left who are usually so quick to become active and activist on issues of racism have been silent. Last weekend saw Britain's largest rally against anti-Semitism since the 1930s, with around 50 to 60,000 people marching through central London, Jews and non-Jews, alongside each other. But what was missing were the trade union banners, the placards from human rights organisations, the, the anti-racist establishment were largely absent because anti-Semitism is not on their anti-racist radars. It's not in their quality, diversity and inclusion, teaching in workplaces. It just doesn't fit within the identity politics that shapes how they how they understand racism. And we've seen this before. This is not a new thing, but this is the impact of what we're saying. And much of it, much of it comes down to what's happening in our universities. What has happened, what's been taught in our universities over decades, but then what is happening now? You know, when we look around at the anti-Semitism that surrounds us today, at the huge number of people who care only about Palestine and no other international cause, who are happy to go along with a with chants that call for Israel's destruction and think that it means they're supporting human rights, who desperately contort the definition of progressive to justify cheering on Hamas, and who don't seem to care that anti-Semites are drawn to their movement, Academia, and I'm conscious I'm speaking to an academic audience, I'm affiliated to academic institutions myself, but I'm afraid to say academia has a lot to answer for. No other sector of our society has put more effort, spent more time and energy, and I'd say staked more of its reputation on embedding this belief about Israel and Israelis, this dehumanising settler colonial theory in the consciousness of the left. And the consequence of all this effort is the dehumanisation of Israeli Jews to such an extent that even murdering babies and raping women can be ignored or redefined as liberation and decolonization. And amongst younger people, I think we are yet to truly appreciate the impact of this, but I worry it is profound. We had already seen that younger people are more likely to believe conspiracy theories about Jewish people than older people are, because they're more likely to believe conspiracy theories about anything, because conspiracy theories are so prevalent on social media, and that is where younger people are more likely to get their news and their information. Younger people in Britain, and there's plenty of opinion polls show this now, are less racist than their elders in many ways, but are more likely to believe conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the banks, controlling politicians, and so on. Broadly speaking, millennials and Gen Z are more likely to be anti-Semitic than people over the age of 60 in Britain. Um, and social media has a lot to answer for. I read just in the last few days, some new data came out. 30 minutes spent on TikTok makes people 17% more likely to share or believe anti-Semitic or anti-Israel views. And of course, so much of the denial of what happened on 7th of October, the denial of the crimes of Hamas, is also fueled by social media as well. So, look, where does this leave us? Um, where are we? Um, it does feel like we're entering a new phase. It does all sound very bleak. I would urge against despair. Um, because one thing that we always discover at times of heightened anti-Semitism is friends we didn't know we have and allies we didn't know we have. And at this protest I was at this morning, there were allies speaking to the Jewish community, standing up for the rights of Israeli women, who perhaps have not done so before, but who have stood up to be counted. You know, it may be that what we're seeing with this kind of rise in anti-Semitism is 
just a bit a reversion to the mean. And we've had decades of relative tranquility for Jewish communities. People of my generation have not experienced, not, not witnessed and experienced a pogrom against Jews and the wave of anti-Semitism that's followed. And now we have. But maybe there is also a generational shift. Um, as the last generation of those who remember the Holocaust slowly, sadly leaves us, and the post-Holocaust sensibilities finally evaporate, perhaps. And a younger generation that has no knowledge of that and that is brought up on the conspiracy theories of social media comes to the fore. And anti-Semitism has been getting more commonplace, more present in mainstream politics and society for a few years anyway. Uh, and it feels like we're now living through an inflection point in the history of anti-Semitism in that respect. And this history of anti-Semitism, it's not one of linear progress from the restrictions and persecutions of the Middle Ages to the relative freedom of today, although obviously things are much better now. But nor does it go in the other direction, you know, a steady, ominous path that climaxed in the genocide of the Shoah. Instead, I think the history of anti-Semitism, it waxes and wanes. There are periods when anti-Semitism comes to the fore at times of insecurity and uncertainty, or when political leaders and movements use it as a, as a weapon of division and to mobilise, and then it recedes. But it does seem like right now, especially with the conflicts in the Middle East coming on top of so much other turbulence in the world, that anti-Semitism is set to have one of its periodic moments of influence once again. Um, so thank you. That concludes my presentation and I think we have plenty of time for questions.